0: You want to pick a fight with Mother Earth, you're not going to win. You know, I don't know how many times Indigenous people have said that. Don't pick a fight with Mother Earth, you're not going to win.
1: There are around 130,000 Anishinaabe and Ojibwe people living on the White Earth Indian Reservation in northwestern Minnesota. Winona LaDuke is one of them. Since founding the White Earth Land Recovery Project in 1989 and Honor the Earth in 1983, she's been fighting to preserve the indigenous sovereignty and environmental integrity of her land and people there. I first learned Winona's name because my dad had a poster for her vice presidential campaign up on our wall. She ran for VP with Ralph Nader on the Green Party line in 1996 and 2000.
0: You try all kinds of things to change the world. And uh, you know, so I've been arrested. I've testified at all kinds of hearings, I've written all kinds of things, I've litigated, and sometimes you run for office.
1: I got to know Winona a little bit when I set up a conversation with her and climate activist Bill McKibben in spring 2020, right after COVID shut the country down. It was for a video piece I produced at Rolling Stone, and we shifted from an in-person to a Zoom recording, not fully realizing how this would become the new norm. Winona and I laughed a lot as we tested her Wi-Fi connection and figured out her best webcam angle. She and Bill discussed the Line 3 pipeline that Winona was then battling against Canadian energy company Enbridge in Minnesota.
0: We're going to oppose you at every at every turn you make, Enbridge. And and you know what? Is that now's the time to find solutions, Enbridge? You want to build pipes, the sewer pipes in all of our villages don't work.
1: That fight was building on her work against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock, a watershed moment in anti pipeline protest and in building a new type of movement linking environmental, indigenous, and racial justice activists.
0: Mini-me-troni. 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 Mini-me-troni.
1: <laughs> I was so impressed by how directly Winona spoke, how clearly she identified bad ideas and bad actors, and her decades of work to build a world that looks more like that of her ancestors. I think anyone working for social justice can learn a lot from her. So on a Thursday morning in December, we chatted on the street in Greenwich Village, doing our best to avoid the Omicron wave that was ripping through New York City. Winona was in town to attend a Forbes 50 over 50 event the night before. So here is Winona LaDuke on protest and survive. Winona. Nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you. Thanks yeah. for making the effort to come down and see me here in that village.
1: Of course. Happy to be here. How was um, your event last night?
0: It was yesterday with the Forbes. It was uh, interesting. There's a lot of very influential women, a lot from corporations, some from the nonprofit sector. They look like they got a lot of shit done in their lives. I, was, I thought that was pretty good. And then uh, Stephen Forbes was there, but I didn't really care to hang with Stephen Forbes. And of course, uh, Jill Biden. Who, and one thing all those women agreed on was uh, reproductive rights. So, I mean, we probably agreed on a lot more, but it was like definitely a big call on that one. So. Yeah. Have you um, met a Biden before? No. No, and I didn't actually shake hands with her. But you know, I'm not much on Washington politicians. They, you know, come and go.
1: Yeah. <laughs> now I don't know. I mean, people who pay attention to you probably know that you ran for vice president. Yes, that's right. Times.
0: That's right. <clears throat> How did that decision get made? Um. You know, I feel like that um, you try all kinds of things to change the world. And, uh, you know, so I've been arrested. <laughs> I've testified at all kinds of hearings. I've written all kinds of things. I've litigated, and sometimes you run for office. So uh, Ralph asked me, you know, I'm, I'm not someone, as, as you just heard, really inclined to spend a lot of time in Washington, but the idea of uh, Ralph asking me and saying, uh, you know, because I always had such high regard for him, you know, as a people's advocate, a consumer advocate, and, a, and a really a good political thinker about the challenges and the opportunities. So I said, OK, you know, that probably be the only way I do it. And then uh, I did twice, two times, and then uh, that's good. You know, I, uh, I actually prefer to live in the north. I live I prefer to live in the rural area. I'm not a very urban person, mm-hmm. although very nice areas, very nice to visit. Yeah, take a little break in the <laughs> yeah. urban cities. Yeah, I haven't been, I wanted to see if New York was still here. You know, <laughs> I was like, I haven't been out. You know, I've been like living on a farm in the North Woods with my, you know, hemp and my horses and my fighting pipelines and getting arrested and facing cops for a year. And so I was like, oh, New York's still out there. So came to see and apparently you're all still here in pretty good form.
1: The first time that we spoke was over Zoom right when the pandemic started remember um, the conversation with Bill McKibben? Yes. And yes. At, you were in Minnesota. I was in Brooklyn. Bill was in Vermont. Right. It was kind of like the first thing I had done where it was all of a sudden we all talked on Zoom instead of... Actually,
0: I kind of like the Zoom. Yeah. It gives you this whole other possibility of some kind of like a face-to-face discussion. And uh, Well, you can get anywhere in the world. Uh, very easily. Yeah. And and stay home. And, and I think that that's part of, you know, it's like this question of like disruptive technologies. You know, there's even prophecies about this. There's a Hopi prophecy about the web in the sky. And first, someone said that was like the Star Wars. I said, no, that's the Internet, you know, the web in the sky. That's what their prophecy talks about, you know, and the changing between worlds. And and I really think that, that it has changed. It's one of the many things that changes our world. And and the pandemic certainly has changed our world. You know, I like what Arundhati Roy says, and she talks about pandemic as portal. Says it's a, a transformation between one world and the next, and... Uh, you know, I feel like that's really this time, and uh, and uh, so I'm I'm really glad to be present, doing my best, uh, doing my best in uh, in in this moment.
1: How has the pandemic affected your world? How has your world changed? Well, over the first last of all, years? they put in a
0: pipeline during a pandemic. <laughs> you know, because it had under the cover of a pandemic, they, did t- they deemed that a bunch of Ambridge workers to put in a Canadian pipeline were essential. Baffling to most of us. Uh huh did that uh shoved it through you know but on the other side I I uh you know quit traveling you know here I am this is like my second trip out and uh I stayed home and I was able to kind of like I mean we just work in our own community and and I stayed home with a bunch of kids like that are no longer in school or their schools are kind of a mess we'll go with that description and so I have been hanging out with a bunch of 15 year olds mostly boys and uh, how
1: many are we talking?
0: Um, well, five to seven, yeah. large numbers. I mean, which is enough 15 year old boys that, that, that those numbers is kind of a lot. And, uh, and, and who it,
1: are these five to seven? 15-year-old I have two boys.
0: grandsons in that and then uh, there's three others who, who moved in and then there's a couple others that showed up at different times to, you know, I'd say five to ten boys, but a lot of you know my interest is in I like, think of those guys as my uh, retirement plan. You know, I mean, my 401k probably ain't going to be worth shit, you know, by, by the time I retire. And uh, so I'd like to know that I have some coherent farmers. And I'm, so I'm trying to raise a generation of farmers. Their, their parents are not farmers. Uh, my children are not farmers, but their grandchildren are very interested in the horses and the farming. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And the other thing I spent a lot of time doing, you know, is fighting Enbridge uh, during the pandemic because they began construction last December. And so then I spent uh, from May till August living at a, at a camp on a river, uh, camping. I've camped a lot, been very outdoorsy for a full year, which is healthy during a pandemic. Don't be inside. So water protectors are generally a very healthy bunch, um, although the you know the arrests are not so healthy. But aside from that, um, but I you know what I really uh, came to understand, which I, I think is important, is kind of um, I re you know. I reaffirmed my belief in how you create a wealthy economy that keeps wealth for the land and for the people. That's what I worked on, because when we quarantined, we, we we're largely food self-sufficient, mostly in my, in, my, in my area, you know, between our wild rice and our farming and our fish and our deer. And then uh, we have uh, neighbors that are Amish. And so I basically quarantined with the Amish. And our, uh, you know, and so none of us really had to go to town. And I really learned a lot more about uh, local economics and how you could keep a local economy that doesn't require a lot of inputs from China. And that was a really, really interesting um, evolution because a lot of people are so uh, preoccupied with this economy that they believe that everything they have, they need. And we don't actually need most of the stuff that we get delivered from China or from elsewhere. And also, I think during the pandemic, we also learned that that you probably don't want to have such a globalized trade network because things fall apart. I think somebody wrote a book called Things Fall Apart, right? You know, but that's what's going on. And so in this moment where between a pandemic and economic crisis and climate change disasters and political crises, I mean, insurrection is kind of an indicator of a political crisis. Um, I think it's, uh, I, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how movements grow. And I see growing social movements. I see the Black Lives Matter transformed uh, many things. I see, you know, anti-colonialism, land back. I see uh, water protectors. And, um, you know, so during that time, I've seen the rise of, of, of and that in, in spite of a pandemic, particularly in Minnesota, because the George Floyd trial, all that happened during a pandemic. You know, we're a hardy bunch. You know, we get outside and, and uh, and we still stand for what we believe so i noticed i noticed a lot of things during that and i'm grateful um yeah i'm grateful you know uh for being home i i don't want to say i'm grateful for the pandemic but the pandemic forced us to change we wouldn't change you know i myself included probably kind of slow on the change you know all
1: right <clears throat> you touched on many things that i kind of want to talk to you more about there um maybe but on the last point um you know, I, I heard you speak on a, it was like a speech with Naomi Klein a couple of years ago, and you were talking about transients and transients in America, <clears throat> and how people don't stay home that much, um, and how sort of like this whole like you know settler colonial aspect of America is to always be going farther and to yeah. always be taking
0: greener m- pastures. Yeah, I mean, I but think outside. that during the I think that during the pandemic, people had to stay home. And so people began to both garden, you know, more than since many time, long time ago. And I think that they are forced to kind of like reconnect with themselves. And I also think that during the pandemic, a lot of people like people had to regroup their work. And I think it's been really important, the relationship with children, because I think children have become a commodity. In this country where they end up you know in a school system or end up like being pushed through some kind of industrial education system to come out of a college with a seventy thousand or hundred thousand dollars worth of student loans and uh that is not right that is not right and i think that a lot of us got time to spend with our kids and uh got we we um you know reaffirmed kind of like for me you know i'm a grandparent you know, and so I, I was really interested in intergenerational families, how they are rebuilt during a pandemic, and how you rebuild families and care for you know communities. I, I just I just have found that really transformative for for me, but I think also a lot of people stayed home with their kids, and I think people began to understand different about uh, differently about work. You know, I always like what John Trudell used to say. He said, the difference between a wage slave and a slave in chains is the second one knows exactly where he stands. And I think about that because I think people are into the cash economy for a set of, basically it's a slavery of a capitalist economy between the debt and the consumption and the rent and the health care and the education systems and, you know, the insurance that you have to pay for, none of which really should be paid for in the way that we pay for them. You know, and I feel like that. So a lot of that, um, you know, in that in that opportunity, you had a chance to kind of think about those things. That's what I feel like, and I think some people did. I think a lot of people. What's it called? The Great Quit.
1: Great Quit. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. don't want
0: to go back to work. They don't want to go back to wage slavery. Yeah. Maybe they want to. Like I think it's also this mortality thing because you're like I don't know if I'm gonna live or not. You know, so I went out and found the five friends that I still liked. No, you know, <laughs> I,
1: mean, you know, yeah, I know a lot of people who have, you know, normally when people quit their jobs, it's cause they have like another one lined up or something. I know a lot of people lately who have been quitting their jobs without another job lined up because right. they're like, this, is, it's this a isn't, it's a life changing,
0: it. it's life transformation, you know, formative. And I think, and I'm hoping that in that transformation, we become better people, yeah. you know, and, and we have an opportunity, you know, not that everybody's going to take that opportunity, but we'll, we'll try, you know, so.
1: So tell me about more about where you live and about the Ojibwe people.
0: Well, you know, I live on the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota. Anishinaabe, there's about 250,000 of us, maybe 300,000 of us, between the U.S. and Canada, northern people, Great Lakes, water people. Water people. We live in a place where half our land is water, you know, 10,000 lakes plus the Great Lakes. That'll give you some water. And so we're water protectors, you know. But uh, where we live, wild rice is our main food and um grows on the rivers and lakes and all you got to do is take care of it it's a wild rice economy and and maple sugar not bad not bad to have those two as foundations of your economy you know and i'm just saying that like one year one tribe produced 463,000 pounds of maple sugar you got any i mean you know what i'm saying this is like big time sugar and so uh that's where I live. I live where the Creator put us in a good spot. And uh, I also live in a place that is full of the t- tragedy of modern America. You know, uh, most of my community lives in a 50-year-old HUD housing project that was put up in the War on Poverty. You know, it's never been kind of like... And, and we have a, an epidemic or pandemic of, of our own, uh, you know, the drugs. Same things as in other communities, you know, overdoses, ODs on heroin. You know, I have family members that OD'd on heroin. And, um, you know, a lot of, of, of uh, Wendigo economics, that's what I call it Like the Wendigo is coming eat our families up You know, particularly with pan- with drugs And so I live in that world too and, and so a lot of the work I've been doing is, you know I spent most of my life on my reservation You know, I traveled around the world I'm obviously a woman of great privilege um, But in that, a lot of what I'm interested in is how you know, sometimes I call it unfuckery, like how you deconstruct that mess, but how you help grow something beautiful. You know, so in the midst of my community, I'll, I'll, I'll show you some pictures. We, we paint murals on the side of our HUD housing project, you know, and, and we did that. You know, I was in, I was in uh, the mission. You know, in California, and I saw the murals in Balmy Alley. I saw an entire alley full of that. So inspired by that. The murals and the mission are very beautiful. Right. So inspired by that, that is what I'm working on in my village. And we have 10, you know, and I'd like to have 20. So people come to my village to get a cup of coffee and look at the murals, maybe get a little Indian taco or something, you know, so that we could be like, you know, come see, you can come see what they gave us and what we did, you know, because right next to my mural house is a house that's like all all like trashed from gang signs. I was like, there you go. You know, you, there's two choices here. And uh, so I spent a lot more time making things beautiful in my village. Uh, you know, more painting, more art. We just put out about 40 dog houses all painted. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but but they're like notoriously, you know, kind of wildy and they needed dog houses. So we built all these dog houses and painted them. And, and do the uh, dogs stay in the dog houses now? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. It's like they're welcome It was, it was a super interesting kind of like evolution from uh you know and i have to say this woman like gave me a price tag for these dog houses and she was like i'm gonna go buy them at walmart i was like no you aren't we're gonna make them you know and then i had kids painting them and it was cool as could be but what my saying is is that is that when you stay home you notice things and i mean not that i didn't notice but you you notice what your hand could do to change things more you know and and uh so i we've we've done a lot of of um art and but my tribe has been and my tribe has been very courageous in fighting bad guys you know we fought enbridge all the way to the end and we still fight enbridge you know and big big other big polluters and and my tribe also um my tribe also drafted the first or not drafted adopted the first rice of wild rice i don't know uh in 2018 2018 my tribe adopted the rights of wild rice which is along the legal canons of the rights of nature that had been, you know, uh, Ecuador began, and then Bolivia, and then Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, my tribe in, on August 4th sued the state of Minnesota in tribal court on behalf of wild rice. You know, so that's the first case in, uh, of, of, a, of a plant suing in tribal court, the first tribal court case, I think, in the world. Um, on on this question of the who has a right? Does the the rice have a right or does Enbridge? You know, so I've seen a lot of changes in my community. And, um, yeah. What's an Indian taco? Oh my God. So it's like fry bread, which is like totally colonial food of white flour, but then you have like meat and, you know, the great great way is, is, you know, buffalo meat and cool beans and you know, it's basically a taco, but on fry bread. And uh, I feel that we You know we're just getting started in our in our renaissance in our renaissance so
1: so line three um when did you guys sort of start that fight and how did it evolve and what does it feel like now to see that the that it's got completed
0: they're horrible jerks is what i think you know but what i so look i i have a long history of fossil fuels work and and in energy infrastructure i'm a bit of an energy infrastructure geek but i didn't know anything about pipelines started in 2013 and 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 the first their first first pipeline was the sandpiper which they had proposed in 2013 and in 2016 that one was dead but we knew line three was coming
1: and line three is what sandpiper replaced no
0: line three just replaced line three but had a whole new section in it because the leech lake tribe would not allow them go through the old section They're like, we're done. Six pipelines is enough, you know, and so they rammed this other pipeline through longer and, you know, put through, you know, burned 28 rivers, stole 5 billion gallons of water, you know, pierced the aquifer in three places and arrested a thousand people. So how do I feel like I feel like kind of like what rape feels like? That's what I feel like. And people are like, the state is even like, do y'all feel like, can you just get over it? It's done. I was like, no, I don't feel better. I don't feel better at all. You know, what you did was wrong. What you did is still wrong. And it's the equivalent of 50 new coal-fired power plants. And if, you know, I just saw that stuff go 30,000 feet up in the air from this latest tornado. Climate change is, you know, if you want to pick a fight with Mother Earth, you're not going to win. You know, I don't know how many times indigenous people have said that. Don't pick a fight with Mother Earth. You're not going to win. You know, so it keeps saying that. And so I'm baffling how the Waltz administration and the Biden administration, Indian people, put those guys in. You know, it's it's well known that Indian, the vote of Native people was very significant for Joe Biden. You know, similarly for Tim Waltz, who has a Native woman named Peggy Flanagan as a lieutenant governor. He got the need of vote because of that. And then he shoved a pipeline down our throats. Kind of baffling the logic and the arrogance of that. I mean, I drove people to the polls for Joe Biden. I drove them to the polls. And, uh, you know, 12 12 miles made, made buffalo wild rice egg rolls to lure them into the tribal elders van to drive them to vote. I was like, I give you an egg roll if you vote. They're like, who's Joe Biden? I said, go vote. You know, <laughs> <laughs> drove them through a sea of Trump signs. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm, uh, I feel like that, you know, they got this pipeline in and now the questions that, I mean, and so we're still fighting them. What are we fighting them on? Oh, they don't have any insurance. That was one of the requirements. Oh, they got the pipeline in and then they discovered that no one would insure their pipeline. And Enbridge is not insured for the value of any spill in Minnesota. And then after that... We I just, can't
1: drive a car without insurance. Right.
0: I can't do <laughs> nothing without insurance. And then the other thing is that before they put the pipeline in, they were supposed to have in place a plan for decommissioning and a fund for decommissioning. Didn't do that either. There's no there's no plan for taking it out, you know? Um, so what the crime that happened, we're pursuing. And we're also pursuing the civil and constitutional rights violations. You know, I'm, I uh, there's a little vi- film about us. Called the Shell River Seven, it was done with Jackson Brown's music, and Jackson Brown, you know, has worked with Honor the Earth for many, many years. And uh, the song is "I Am a Patriot." And and in that, um, you know, seven of us were arrested on the Shell River. And um, you know, I told uh, Attorney General of Minnesota Keith Ellison, who's actually a pretty good guy, I said, "I want my charges dropped. I want my charges dropped. We want all those charges dropped, Keith, because we're not criminals. We're water protectors. You know." And I said, I, "And I want a medal." because I protected the waters of Minnesota and you didn't, you know? You let them run over me because they had bigger military and, and they controlled the police force, you know? So it's a bitter battle, bitter battle, And uh, but you know, it's a battle and uh, the Anishinaabe people are still fighting Enbridge because they're trying to go through Wisconsin and through Michigan where the governor, Governor Gretchen of Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Whitmer has said that Enbridge has to cease and desist as of last year in May, from moving oil under the Straits of Mackinac because it's a dangerous pipe. And they're in violation of a state order by the governor, the state DNR, you know, of tribal court orders. It's a rogue corporation, so we're gonna pursue them. And they, you know, what I feel like is is that the party is over in the tar sands. I don't really know how to say that, but when the Koch brothers leave, and the Saudi Sovereign Fund leaves, and Harvard leaves, I'm just like, you know, I spent a lot of time at Harvard and you couldn't get them to leave anything. But they're leaving the fossil fuels party, right? Party's over. Party's over. And so, you know, I just want them to clean up their mess before they go bankrupt. i must stay on them. Uh, sadly, I had hoped for a divorce, you know, and it's kind of a joke between me and the project managers because I'd said, I, you know, I said, I need a divorce, guys. And they'd be like, hmm, I don't think so. You know, I said, We're you take signing. your stuff. So you take your stuff, you go back to Canada. I keep my stuff. It's all good. It's kind of a joke with me and those guys. It didn't didn't work. So I'm still I still have a really abusive relationship with Enbridge. <laughs> However, with the help of some donors, some really some really great rich people from the 1% and Ceres Trust. You know those guys, Ceres Trust, they do like investor <coughs> you know, investor work. We purchased Enbridge's land back from them. That is to say that Enbridge bought the lands on two sides of my office, next to the White Earth Reservation. Next to the White Earth Reservation, they bought land around my office so that they could conduct surveillance upon us. And um, last week, or in early December, I went and, and gave a check for $166,000 to Embridge to buy that land back. And I was like, that's what land back looks like. And it made me feel a lot better. You know? And so in this moment, you know, we then What are also, you guys going to do with it? Well, we, we're going to grow uh, hazelnuts, corn, hemp. We're going to grow some food on it and uh it's it's in a great spot and then we also bought some more land back with the help of some donors we bought a 400 acre sheep farm we bought a place for our solar thermal panel manufacturing facility so you know we we bought some land to begin our work on the on what you would call the just transition but you know i refer to it as the new green revolution um you know between our solar and our hemp our hemp farming um we're expanding dramatically and so right now i'm uh Organizing to buy seeds uh, so that I can distribute seeds uh, throughout tribal reservations in northern Minnesota and north and south Dakota.
1: Yeah, tell me more about that and, and what you see as sort of this new sustainable economy that you're working
0: on. Well, I mean, it's not new because hemp is old, you know, but its criminalization we know was, was kind of a product of the interests of, of uh, the fossil fuel industry and the lumber industry and the cotton industry and all the old barons. Of old. But hemp is so much more efficient on anything that, you know, paper, eight times more efficient, you know, you can be recycled eight times versus wood, four, you know, twice as off much, has a much, uh, much better carbon, takes all the carbon in. And then the word, I just like the fact that the word canvas comes from cannabis. So the word canvas comes from cannabis. That's a lot of potential. So I'm interested in transforming the materials economy. I'm working on fiber hemp which you can make clothing out of, you can do bioplastics, not my interest, but you can make um, wood-related products out of. I'm interested in, in hemp wood, hemp insulation, and hemp fabric. Um, I'm interested pretty much in hemp. And and I see it, I call it the new green revolution, because first of all, the, the green revolution came from Minnesota. That's where Norman Bor- Borlaug, the father of the green revolution, was at the University of Minnesota. And so I will be one of the mothers of the new green revolution. You know, you're going to need a few mothers or doulas, and it's going to be in Minnesota too. So that's what I'm working on: is uh, building an intertribal hemp cooperative to produce fiber hemp in our region, value-added production, and uh, and make something you know beautiful for for our uh, for our future. I'm I'm super excited about it. even hemp batteries do you see that there that that hemp has certain uh ability the graphene in the herd um is something i don't really understand it's a little over my pay grade but the graphene is comparable to a power uh, power bank tesla's um it it has a a super capacitator ability and then they are looking at far more and when the hemp batteries roll out i want to be at the table i don't want to be on the menu i want to be at the table but I'm so, you know, that's what I'm interested in. And then, you know, but I'm really interested in making a beautiful world. You know, I don't like the, I don't like the Armageddon. I don't like the zombie apocalypse world. None of that really interests me. And in, in our prophecies, we don't have that same thing. You know, in indigenous prophecies, we don't have an Armageddon. We have a birth, death, and rebirth. Because that's the way the natural world is. You know, there's not an Armageddon, but there's a massive change.
1: I do want to maybe uh, go far back a little bit and ask you about your childhood. Um, Because, you know, a a theme of this podcast is kind of talking about the intersections of art and activism.
0: I was raised by an artist. You were raised by an artist. Right. I was raised by an artist. Her name is Betty LaDuke. Very prominent artist in Oregon and in women's art circles. Uh, she does giant paintings that are six by six acrylic paintings. She did, you know, I had a, I had an etching press in my living room as a child, and then we finally moved into a house where she has an etching press. You know, I mean, I was raised by an artist, and and so I think about that a lot because, um, you know, her art. She worked mostly to document the work of women artists internationally. And also to, to, you know, break down the barriers on what is art. Why are only white men in galleries? You know, that's a question a lot of us would ask, you know, when obviously art is not just done by white men. Um, and in fact, some of the art by white men just really sucks. You know, I mean, what was, that? what was that one guy I just, oh, I used to use him as a splatter guy. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like those guys, I'll come up with his name. But you know what I'm saying is, is that, so I was raised by an artist in a, who had a studio and was an art professor. And in that, I had a pretty great appreciation for the role of art in social movements. Uh, her art was often for social movements and also documented social movements and women's art in social movements. And uh, so art's always been a part of my work. You know, as uh, uh, Honor the Earth is an organization that was founded by the Indigo Girls and myself with music and the arts as a centerpiece of our organizing strategy. And since our inception, you know, we, um, in, in uh, 1993, we have indeed done exactly that. We have brought the arts to uh, communities, we've commissioned all kinds of art, we've done all kinds of billboards. You know, of art, and we've done all kinds of concerts, including our latest concert, which was in downtown Duluth on Bayfront. And it was this summer on August 18th, my birthday. It's kind of a little present from my staff to me, I think. But <laughs> it was like all these great musicians from Minneapolis, like Mumu Fresh and Bonnie Vere, and a lot of really well known indigenous artists, Corey Medina. We took to the the big stage down there by the by the lake by Lake Superior and we've done concerts there for many years but as we prepared to do this concert the Honor the Earth Stop Line 3 concert the mayors of 11 cities wrote a letter to the Duluth City Council and said you shouldn't let those people have a concert they're they're, they're known to incite violence that organization they're known and I was like hey I don't have any guns you have all the guns you know, you're the ones arresting people with that ma- ma- massive military. You know, and uh, fortunately for us, they had not looked at the Duluth City Council lately. But the mayor is a woman, and that, and the and the president of the city council is an Indian woman. You know, so what I figured out is that the white privilege of the North and the Deep North is not necessarily so uh, resilient as they thought that it that all kinds are coming in so they try to close us down and we had a fabulous concert and 5,000 people came out and and uh, everybody still knows that water's life and oil is not so
1: and you and you had a good birthday
0: I had a great birthday
1: so what um, I don't know what sort of effect do you think that art can have on you know inspiring people to act or in kind of you know encouraging and and making people feel, you know, more involved in the movement. What what effect can art have on social movements, do you think? Art
0: breaks breaks up, you know, gives you a space to go in. It gives you a window into a story. You know, not everybody's into a story that's into your soul. And it's this space where you can you can you can be. And how you experience art is very intimately your own. I mean, there's like the group art, but it's really ultimately your own resonance with the art that that transforms something more than maybe an intellectual meshe- message would you know, it gives you this space and so I feel like that uh, there's the, there is that very significant transformative element, but then I also want to say that I've decided that the art of social justice organizing is an art, it's not a science so I believe that I am an, I, I am part of an artistic movement of transforming this world and, and why I say that is, is that, you know I got, you know, from everything from figuring out what billboards you're going to have to, you know, how you're going to move a solar project ahead in your community. That is a, wa- a big canvas, that is a big canvas. And I have about six canvases going at once. But I went to see my mother who is 89 in January and she had, she had six canvases going too. And so that's how I realized that you don't have to be singularly focused on one piece of art. You can have more than one piece of art, which I think I intuitively knew. But it took me till you know basically the age 62 to realize that I was actually my mother's daughter. And that art had transformed how I thought about transformation. And I didn't understand it as like what percentage of people you got to vote. I understood a different canvas, though. So it influences my thinking deeply.
1: When did you first like think about social movements?
0: I mean, I was born into a social movement. My parents lived in East LA. My father was an extra in the westerns. You know, a funny thing I saw once upon a time. How did o- he
1: get into that sort of work?
0: A handsome Indian man who could ride a horse. <laughs> And you got paid. Living in LA. Well, he moved to LA to be an actor because he had a, you know, was a real handsome guy and he could ride and you could make 25 bucks if you fell off a horse. So that's why, like, John Wayne would shoot and everybody would fall off, you know, because you make a lot more money if you fell off the horse, right? And um, so he, not a lot of speaking roles, um, but he, um, you know, so I was raised on, on a, I, I spent a lot of time on sets as a child. You know, it's really funny. Did you ever see this movie, Once Upon a Time in the West? I think it's it's with um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. I, I watched. Oh, that. that kind of like new one. The um, yeah, about the Tate murder. Yeah. Charles Manson. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I see, did that see, that was one. an era when I was in L.A. and my father was at the Tate Ranch, and I saw that movie, and I said, I saw that movie, and then I went to see my mom. I said, Mom did we ever go live on a set? I mean, did I go, you know, I, I I, had this, it was really bizarre, I had this, like, memory of this set. It was when I watched the movie, I was like, she's like, yeah, you were on that set as a kid. So, you know, then my father was... You were at, on that set? I was on we that with, set, or yeah. I was on, like, movie sets like yeah. that. I think it was that set, though. It was like a, a place, you know? That's what she said. I mean, she. I don't know if she's on the movie, but my point is, is that... Um, my dad was active in the Indian movement in L.A., and the farm workers' movement. My, my family wa- wa- marched with the farm workers. My, my grandmother is, is a Jewish woman from New York who passed away, but she was in the uh, garment workers' union. And then organized, um, you know, so I come from people who stood for justice, you know? And uh, so on both sides, my mother's side and my father's side, you know, we were, they are supporting the farm workers and the Indian movement. And then um, my parents were anti-war activists. My mother was active in the Poor People's March with Martin Luther King, you know. She did paintings for, you know, that all of this as an artist, a social justice artist. So I uh, have only known, I've really only known that worldview of you're gonna, you know, you should do something, you know, you should do something. And, and uh, so I come from good people my stepfather, you know, was a, was an uh, entomologist. He worked at a farm. Uh, uh, well, he was worked for the state of Minnesota, the Oregon State University, and so I was raised around a lot of farming too. So basically what I do now is pretty much a reflection of how I was raised and who raised me, you know, which is a good indicator. Like, I come from good, sensible people, but also it, it, I give credit to them. Can America become a good place? Yeah, I always like uh, Simon Ortiz from Sand Creek. You know, poem where he talks about a new America is born and spring is coming. You know, but I think about that because in in the world that we live in, there is uh, you know this is the winter time, and in um, in the world, no matter you know where it is it's a time where the plants are asleep you know I don't want to talk about California but you know what I'm saying this is like things go to rest and when things go to rest what you what you have an opportunity to do is to reflect and you know have good intention take some time down you know and then um, prepare you know there'll be a rebirth in the spring that's the way it works and so plant good seeds you know, for spring. And I think about seeds, not just, you know, the hemp seeds or the heritage squash seeds I plant, but I think also of good seeds for thinking, and good thought. And what's next for you and what's next for the Ojibwe? Um, we're going to, you know, keep fighting to protect our water. There's other evil demons, usually Canadian multinationals. Canada should really be questioned. They aren't a very nice country. They should export their health system and not their tar sands. That's what I think. You know, but uh, aside from that, then our focus is really on uh, building this, you know, strengthening our wild rice economy, our protecting our maple sugar, and then growing this new green revolution and being the leaders. Uh, Because it's obvious that the state of Minnesota is incapable of providing leadership um, on what what a ecological and socially just transition looks like. So rather than wait, vex, Or as my my grandmother would say, kvetch, you know, I'm going to just keep going and make something beautiful, Mm -hmm. because why wait for them?
1: Thanks so much to Winona LaDuke and her team at Honor the Earth for making this interview happen. You can find out more about what they're up to at honortheearth.com. This episode of Protest and Survive was edited by Jason Halal. Original music was provided by Jesse Crawford. I'm your host, Reed Dunley. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thanks for tuning in.